0: We are going to be jumping back into Philippians. And I know some of you are thinking jumping back into Philippians. It was last spring where we were in Philippians. We're going back into it. We took the summer off because we studied the life of David. Now we're going to get back into the book of Philippians. So today we're going to be starting the Philippians uh, chapter 2. As we get started, I want to ask you a question this morning. What do you have? What do you have? This is an interesting question. We ask each other this a lot in, in, in different ways, and different manners. For instance, uh, one thing that guys like to ask each other is, uh, what do you do for work? AKA, what job do you have, right? How many square feet your house? What kind of home do you have? Does your business match your 401k? What type of retirement are you gonna have, right? How many kids do you have? What family do you have? The one I get all the time. Oh, how, how big's your church? That's how many people do you have, right? That's what what they're asking. We ask these, what do you have types of questions all of the time. And and they're not not always bad, right? This helps us size people up sometimes is what it does, right? We we can assess who they are. We can see what they value, right? Do they value family? Do they value being debt-free? What do they care about? Do they value travel? can also help us uh, assess the type of person we're talking with. Is this a hardworking person? Is this a lazy person? Is this an introvert? Are they an extrovert? What type of person are they? But as we all know, a lot of times, what do you have questions become a way of comparing ourselves with others, right? We ask, what do you have? And then we compare what I have. And sometimes it's pretty great because if I'm talking to somebody who in my eyes doesn't have what I have, I feel great about myself. And then other times when I'm talking with people who have more than what I have, I feel horrible about myself, right? What do you have questions can become sinister because what happens is what do you have quickly becomes who are you, right? What you have becomes your identity. And that's the way that the world works. That's the way that the world is. You are what you have. Job, family, health, all of these things. God's economy is different upside down. It's backwards to us because we're the ones that are backwards. In God's economy, it's not what you have that informs who you are. It's who you are that informs what you have. And that's what Paul writes to the the Philippians, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. Who are we? And based on our identity, what do we have, and how do we live in light of that? So Philippi, just to remind you, because it's been a while since we were in this, Philippi was a really sweet city at this time. Paul actually is writing this letter, and he doesn't chastise them because they were a really great church. They were supporting him financially. They were living on mission. They were sticking together during tough times. Uh, This city was actually founded way, way back uh, by Alexander the Great's dad, and he named it after himself because he thought he was that awesome, right? So he names it after himself. And then later on in history, in 42 BC, there's this huge battle of Philippi between Octavius and Mark Antony. Octavius wins, and then he sends all these people from Rome to go live in Philippi, which back then was in Macedonia. It's in modern-day Greece now. So all these people are mad because they're like, we don't want to go live there. We're Roman citizens. We like it here. And he says, listen, you go live there and I'm going to give you all of the same rights as Roman citizens, you lose nothing. And he writes up this law, it's called the Italic Rite, and it means that the city of Philippi is Italian Roman soil outside of Italy. So if you're there, you are a citizen of Rome. And that came with some really nice perks. One of them being, you can't be crucified as a citizen of Rome. (laughs) Even if you were the worst of criminals, you can't be crucified because that was reserved for non-citizens, right? So that's a decent perk if you're looking at breaking the law. Most people weren't, right? So the other perks that they had was they didn't have to pay a tax for polls. They didn't have to pay land tax. Wouldn't you want this? Those are some pretty nice perks of being a citizen of Rome. So the people in Philippi had prestige. I was trying to think of a way to explain this to us. It's like how, you know, people in Verado don't want to be part of Buckeye. Do you know how that works? (laughs) It's like that, except they actually had legality behind it. They were right. They were different. They weren't Macedonia. They were Roman soil, all right? They all the Verado people hate me right now. That's all right. (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. That's what it was like. They had privileges that came with this. So what I'm trying to emphasize is to the Philippians, citizenship's a big deal. It's a big deal and it meant something to them. They were better than everybody else in, in the area that they were in. And Paul knows this, and he speaks to this. And I want you to look at Philippians. We're, we're going to be in chapter 2, but we're going to start looking at chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Because this is the charge he's giving, and where are our, our passage fits in. So, Philippians 1, 27 and 28. He says, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too is from God. Do You see that portion, that, that, that exhortation he's giving them, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. You see that? Literally in Greek, that says, Live as citizens. He uses the word citizens. Live worthy as citizens of the gospel. Which to the Philippians, they go, oh yeah, citizenship. We know what that is, that's a big deal to us, right? And he's saying, you're not just citizens of Philippi with your Roman citizenship, you're citizens of heaven. Later on, actually, in chapter three, verse 20, he's gonna say that. We're citizens of heaven, right? This is a big deal. So how do we live worthy as a citizen of heaven? How are the Philippians to do that? Well, he lists two things in this passage of what they're to do. The first we saw in verse 28. He says, don't be frightened by outside opposition. Don't worry about that, okay? As a church, we are citizens of heaven, so outside opposition, we're not supposed to get stressed about. And then what he's going to say in chapter two is, and you need to live in unity and humility with each other. You know, most churches, Uh, Blow up not because of external opposition, but because of internal problems Did you know that church splits don't happen from the outside they happen from the inside and The Philippian church was doing fine. There weren't problems. There weren't factions developing but Paul knows based on his work with other churches Hey, you gotta be unified together. It's really important to walk humbly as the citizens you are internally and that's what he's gonna go on to explain for for chapter 2 using Jesus As our example. Much like the Philippians were outside of Italy and they were citizens of Rome, the Christian is outside of heaven, but we're a citizen of heaven. And we need to live in our true identity as who we really are. And that's what Paul is is talking about here. So let's look at chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, our text for today. Based on living as citizens, he says, therefore If there is any comfort in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any participation in the spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose." Paul says, you are citizens, and then in chapter 1, he tells us four things that we have. Now, when you read the Bible, sometimes translation gets weird, because did you see all that? There's four if statements there in the first verse. Did you see that? If there is comfort in Christ, and that could make you go, well, isn't there comfort? Like if, like what do you mean if? There is. If there's participation. Well, there, there is. Um, I'm a super nerd, and so if you don't care about this, just turn your ears off for like 30 seconds. That's fine. Um, and I like studying nerdy things like in Greek and stuff. And what's going on here is this is what's called the first class condition, which means you should translate if, since. He's not saying if and maybe we don't. He's saying if there's comfort in Christ, and for sure there totally is. That's what he's saying, okay? So you can say, since we have comfort in Christ, since we have participation in the Spirit. Does that make sense? Do you see how that works? So these are for sure things, objective realities, that citizens of heaven have. Well, what are they? What are the things listed? The first, he says, is since you've got comfort, in Christ. What he's referring to here is the salvation that the Philippians experienced and the comfort they have knowing they're secure in Christ. They're secure in their salvation. I know so many Christians, I've talked to, I mean even lately, a lot, and they worry about whether they're really saved. Have you ever thought that? Some have, some haven't. Doubts okay, it's not a bad thing, but let's just think about this. When we start to wrestle with, am I really going to heaven when I die? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's actually what Paul told the Philippian jailer, right? So he's in this group. You believe. John, you believe. You're born again. You can't become unborn, right? Adopted as sons and daughters. You can't become unadopted by God. Actually, in Rome, adoption was more legally binding than having biological children. I don't know if you knew that. But if you had biological kids in Rome, you could take them to the dump if you didn't want them and just leave them there. No, I'm not kidding. Like for real, you could. Uh, Cool thing was Christians would go adopt these kids. And then, um, but if you adopted somebody in the Roman world, you could never get out of that relationship. So when Paul says we're adopted, it's more of a stamp of approval than being a biological child. It's a big deal. It's something that can't be reversed. Once you're born again, once you believe in Jesus, it's a done deal and you can't get out of it. You're a citizen of heaven and so many people worry about, well, did I do it right? Was I sincere enough? And what they start to do is they look at their performance as the basis for their security. And that's a horrible place to look because your performance wanes. Some days you do okay. Some days you're miserable. You struggle with sin. You're going to struggle with sin. It's up and it's down. And, and people worry about their assurance based on how well they're doing. We can't look at how we're doing for our security. We have to look to Christ and what he did and that's it. And it's done and it's complete. There's comfort in that. There's not comfort when I look to my performance to see if I'm really in or not. It doesn't help. It causes anxiety. It would be like if a Philippian was worrying about having to pay a poll tax and everyone's saying, you're a Roman citizen. We don't pay taxes. Yeah, I know. I know that's what the law says, but I'm just a little freaked out. So I'm starting to save up and I got to, and they're like, you're a crazy person. (laughs) You're not resting in who you are. And I love what he says is there's comfort in Christ. There's comfort in knowing you're secure, but there is a lot of discomfort when you don't remember who you are. There's a lot of discomfort when you start looking to your performance and how well you're doing as the basis of getting into heaven when it's not about you at all. It's about Christ. Jesus paid it all, right? We sing songs like that. We don't sing, Jesus got us off to a good start, and now I got to work really hard to get it, right? But a lot of Christians act like one day I'll become a citizen. No, you are a citizen. You are a citizen of heaven. Live worthy of who you are. That's what Paul's calling us to do. There's great comfort in knowing that there's nothing that I can do to lose my salvation because it's held secure in the hands of Jesus and in the hands of God. I love what Paul said in another letter. Uh, He said, nothing can separate us from the love which is in Christ Jesus. You see that in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus and then he lists all this stuff that can't separate you height depth angels demons right uh, and then I love what he says things present or things to come you know what's a thing to come in your life for sure more sin you're gonna sin more in the future and that can't separate you from the love of God because you're in Christ Jesus and that should bring us immense Comfort. This is an objective reality as Christians that we have. As citizens of heaven, we have comfort in Christ. Paul also says we have a consolation of love. The idea here is a a consolation, a consoling that love brings. This is a relational aspect to our walk with God. Positionally, we're secure and there's comfort in it. But as we walk through life, there's times where Jesus just loves on us and he just gives us this consolation feeling. I I, I remember one time Uh, We just got back from taking a whole bunch of students here uh, on a mission trip to California And we always we come back and then we present on Saturday night And then we have all the kids present and do a report service on Sunday mornings, right? Many of you have been at those services and one of the things that as a youth pastor I'd always think of was I got to get these kids really hyped up on sugar and caffeine to keep them awake after a long week of Ministry and then I tell them hey be here at 7 a.m. on Sunday So after the Saturday night service, I was driving home, I called Starbucks to order a whole bunch of coffee. And I'm ordering all this stuff, and then they say, hey, what's the name for that? And I say, "Uh, Robbie. And the guy on the other end says, oh, Robbie from Desert Springs? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's weird, yeah, I am. And he's like, oh, I know who you are, this and that, whatever. And um, it's hard to explain this to city people, for real. Like it's difficult, I I don't know if you can relate with me on this. But I'm from a real small town. I'm from Pine, Arizona, and everyone knows, oh, I've been there, Pine Top. No, not Pine Top, Pine. It's not the same place. So small, you don't even know where it is. 3,000 people I grew up with. Everybody knows everybody. My church growing up, 50 people. Sometimes uh, I'll be coming to church and I'll just be laughing at the Lord and saying, what have you done with my life? Like, I work at a church that has PowerPoint. This is crazy to me. The city people, they're like, well, what were you using? We're books. We were using books. They still use books. I was there. They, that's what they use. There's not There's not instruments. There's There's old piano in the corner, you know? And that's how life was. And it is funny to me sometimes that I live in the city and I work at this, this type of a church. Um, it's, it's crazy to me. I just, man, Lord, you've brought me a real long way because I'm just this kid from, from nowhere, you know? And I was having one of those moments. I was praising the Lord when I was ordering that coffee and just thinking about the awesome week we had, taking all these students to California and what a blessing it was and how God worked. And then I'm on the phone with this barista and the, a barista in the city knows who I am. It's just silly to me, right? Because I'm nobody. And I hang up the phone and I was talking with the Lord about that. And he just really sweet, tender spoke to me. Not, not, not new revelation, nothing deep theological. He just said, I know what you mean, I was from a small town too. And I went to the city and it is, it is a funny thing. And it just this rush of like consolation of love from my savior. He, he just loved me, have, you've experienced that as a Christian. You've had times where he's just said the sweetest thing where he's just at the right moment, consolation of love. These are objective realities we have as citizens. We have comfort in knowing we're secure in Christ. And we have times where he just consoles us and just shows us that he's tangible, that he's close, that he loves us. Another thing Paul says that we have is participation in the spirit. The spirit being mentioned here is the Holy Spirit. Now everywhere when you read in scripture and it says spirit, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's the human spirit, but here it's the Holy Spirit. And he's saying to Philippians, you guys have participated in the Holy Spirit and you know it. What does that mean? What's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? One of the things that the Holy Spirit does is it convicts Christians and non Christians of sin. Have you been convicted of sin? Yes, you've participated in the Holy Spirit. That's great. You felt that. You've had a guilty, unconvicted feeling because the Spirit lives in citizens of heaven. Another thing the Holy Spirit does is He helps us in our prayer life. When we don't know how to pray, when we don't know what to say, when we're going through agony, depression, tough times, He moves in and He intercedes on our behalf. Another thing the Holy Spirit does is he brings about the fruit of the Spirit in our life. It's not our fruit, but as we stay close with Jesus, and we're being conformed more and more like our Savior. We see love, joy, peace, patience. Sometimes, do you see like you're just, you're doing really good in Bible reading, you're regularly praying, you're abiding in Christ, and all of a sudden you notice yourself being more of a patient person. Have you ever noticed that? It's not like you're trying to, you just see, oh man, these things aren't frustrating me like they used to. What's going on with me? Fruit of the Spirit. You're participating in the fruit of the Spirit. A really big evidence for the church at Philippi that they were participating in in the one Spirit was who this church was made up of. There is a ragtag group of people that made up the church at Philippi. If you go back to Acts and you see Paul goes into Europe for the first time, and he goes down by a river in Philippi and he meets this lady named Lydia. She believes the gospel. She becomes the first part of the church at Philippi. Who's Lydia? She is a rich fashion designer. She's loaded. You know how we know that? Because she's from Thyatira. She's not even from Philippi, but her house in Philippi that she's summering at is big enough. She invites all these people to live and stay there. She had money. She dealt in purple dye. She is a fashion designer from the big city on vacation in Philippi. That's the first person who becomes part of the church. The next person is is somebody completely opposite of this. Paul is ministering in Philippi and there's this slave girl who's demon possessed who keeps coming up behind him screaming, this man is following the one true God. He follows the God most high. And and Paul was getting annoyed with her. And I love the text because it says, being greatly annoyed, he turned and he cast the demon out of her, right? And after he, he, he cleared this, this slave girl of demon possession, her, her owners were really mad at him because you took away our lucrative business. She can't predict the future. She can't be a fortune teller anymore. What are you doing to us? And they cause a big scene, Paul gets thrown in jail. But you've got this demon possessed, ex-demon possessed slave girl who now becomes part of the church. What does she have in common with Lydia? Nothing outside, but, but they have the spirit in common. Third person that becomes part of the church in in Philippi. Paul's in jail because of the thing with the slave girl. And then an angel busts him out, right? There's this big earthquake, the the chains open, the, the doors open, and the jailer who's there thinks that he's dishonored his country, he thinks he's dishonored his family because he let people escape. So he decides suicide is the honorable thing to do. So he's about to fall on his sword, and Paul says, stop, nobody's left yet. Don't kill yourself, you didn't lose us. And the guy looks at him and says, What must I do to be saved? And they say, Acts 16 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. He gets saved. He takes him to his house. The people in his house, his kids, his servants, they believe in Jesus. The church is starting. This man was most likely a retired military. Philippi, uh, like being. Uh, in, It was was like Verrado in a sense, but it was also like Pebble Creek in a sense, because it was a retirement community. So all these people from Rome would retire there because you have the privilege of of Rome, you're out of the big, big city and all the politics, it's a resort town, it's nice. So all these ex-military people would retire there and this jailer was most likely a vet from the Roman army. He's retired there and he's working a blue collar job. Blue collar ex-military. Rich fashion designer from Thyatira. Slave girl who'd been demon possessed. What do these people have in common? The spirit. They have the spirit in common. Have you gone to other churches, traveled around, met other Christians? There is this weird affinity that you have with them. There's like a instant comfort level, an instant trust. I traveled to France, Honduras, Romania, the Philippines, Rwanda. I meet Christians I can't even talk with because I don't know their language. And yet, there's this affinity, there's this oneness, there's this we're together thing that I experience. It's the spirit. They've participated in the spirit. I've participated in the spirit, one spirit. That is an objective reality that as Christians we have. We have comfort and security in who we are in Christ. We have consolation of love that God brings into our lives at times. And we have participated in the spirit and we can know it because he convicts us of sin. He prays on our behalf. We see the Holy Spirit, uh, the fruit of the spirit at work in our lives. And we have an affinity with other believers. The last thing that Paul mentions we have is affection and compassion. Now, when I read this, I thought, who's affection and compassion? Does this mean like each other's, like the church is affectionate and compassionate? Because, yeah, that happens sometimes, and then sometimes it doesn't, right? If you're waiting for my affection and compassion, some days I'm okay at it, and then other days I'm terrible at it, right? So that's not something that we always have amongst ourselves. Who is this from? Who's affection and compassion? And as I studied it, and the more I read it, I'm pretty convinced that this is affection and compassion from God the Father. And what Paul's saying is in these four things, we have all parts of the Trinity actively being a part of what we are. Being a benefit of citizenship in heaven. Affection and compassion of the Father. You remember John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his Son. Moved by great love, he gave. One of the verses, well, probably like the most common verse known from the book of Lamentations is Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, right? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never end because they are new every morning, right? Mercies. This word compassion in Philippians is the word mercy. We have a God who's affectionate and loves us. We have a God who is merciful towards us. When I was in seminary, um, my, my friends that were studying Greek with me, we'd always ask each other, "What's the weirdest Greek word you found in the New Testament?" Right? Like, what's the funniest-sounding one? And this word was always top of the list. There was one that was called "skubala," which that's a cool word, right? "Skubala," that's also in Philippians. But the one that I'm talking about here—it's the word for affection—and it's the word "splaknon." It sounds German almost, doesn't it? <laughs> "Splaknon." You got to spit when you say it. And it's the word for affection. And do you know what it literally means? Your guts. It means your intestines. And you go, what does that have to do with affection? It is bizarre to us because when we wanna convey deep affection to somebody, we say, I love you from the bottom of my heart, right? That's what this is meaning. I love you from the bowels. I love you from the depth of me. This was a common phrase that they would use. Oftentimes, we'll translate it heart because we get what that means. And if it was translated guts, it'd be weird. But that's what it's saying. I love you from the depth of who I am. From deep, deep down, I have affection for you. Splachnon. God has affection for you from the depth of his being. This is amazing. This isn't something you're earning. This is something you have. This is a perk of citizenship. You have this objective reality currently. The word compassion is the word mercy, right? Mercy. It's important for us, I think, to understand the difference between grace and mercy, right? A lot of times they get conflated. They're different things. Uh, Justice is getting what you deserve, okay? And justice would be all of us spending an eternity separated from God because we all fall short, right? But thank the Lord for grace because grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. Grace is getting a gift that you don't deserve. And mercy is not getting what you deserve. You see the difference? Mercy is God withholding justice. And his mercies are new every morning and he has compassion for you. And every time you sin, he doesn't zap you, right? He's patient with you because his mercies are new every morning. We have comfort in Christ because we're secure in our identity. We have a loving relationship we can walk in with Jesus. He told his disciples the night before he was betrayed, abide in my love. Stay close to me in my love. We have participation in the Holy Spirit, and there's evidence of it to us in our lives. And we also have great, deep affection that comes from the base of who God is and mercies every day that flow from our great God. Paul says, in light of these things, live as who you are. Your citizens live worthy, walk in humility, and walk in unity with one another based on what you have. Why? Well, because if we're all on the same page, if we all have these four amazing benefits of being a citizen, I don't need to compare myself with you. You don't need to compare yourself with me. We've all got these amazing things. We can walk in unity. We're enabled to walk in humility and unity based on who we are and what comes with it, the benefits that come with it. What would a unified church look like? I I think about this a lot. And I think if there was a really unified church, I couldn't go there because I would would screw the whole thing up. (laughs) What would it look like though? I think one of the thing that our our world needs to see in in unification isn't that we all believe the exact same little minute doctrinal points about eschatology or about young earth or old earth, right? Or about this aspect of what Isaiah was saying, or I think all that stuff's fun to study, but I don't think unity is something that, that means we all agree on every little thing. I think that God, if he wanted to, could have clearly spelled out every single doctrine for us. Couldn't he have done that? And I think his word's absolutely true, and I think we misinterpret it, and that's why we have differences. But I think he left it up to a certain vagueness in things, to where we could interpret it differently, so we would have differences, because he wants us to have unity in differences. If he spelled everything out for us, we wouldn't have to be unified, because we wouldn't have any differences, you see? I think God's gracious in not telling us exactly every single thing because it gives us a chance to love others even though I disagree with them. That's what a unified church would look like. Our our culture thinks that if you disagree with them, you hate them, right? Man, what a great thing for the church of Jesus to show, no, we disagree on some things, but we're unified and we love each other. I, I love how Jesus says, love your enemy, That implies you disagree with them a little bit, right? (laughs) On a few things at least, like they hate you. I disagree with that. You can love people that you disagree with. And we need to strive for that as Christians in the church. Why? Because we are citizens of heaven and we have comfort in Christ. We have participation in the spirit. We have a consolation of love and we have affection and compassion that flows from our great God. As we continue to study the second chapter of Philippians, Paul's going to move into talking about humility. And humility was not a virtue in the Greco-Roman world. They were about honor and pride and, and, and bringing, bringing uh, acceptance to the, the Roman world, right? This is what they, they lived for. To bring shame on your family was horrendous. But humility was like a bad thing. And, and, and Paul's telling these citizens of Philippi, you need to be humble. And he's going to go in to describe how humble Jesus was by casting aside all of his deity and all of the privileges he had and coming here and becoming like one of us. As Christians, to live worthy of our citizenship means to remember who we are, to know what we have, and to walk in unity and humility with each other. That's what God desires for us. That's what Paul is encouraging this church to do. So as we continue to study this book, I I want you to do two things. I want you to remember who you are, citizen of heaven. You're not trying to earn it, you're there. You've got the status, it's done. Remember who you are. And the second thing, remember what you have. Remember what you have. You have these four things listed. We need to live in light of that.